Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party where we sip hot chocolate and tell each other scary stories about our childhoods. So grab your Swiss Miss packet and the vodka you stole from your mom and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez. And this week we're taking on just a chill, no big deal topic, the shadow and how to work with it. First of all, what the F even is the shadow? You can think of it as your subconscious, the things you want or hate or are drawn toward for reasons you aren't consciously aware of. We also often talk about the shadow in terms of the things about ourselves that we feel too ashamed to admit to, like being jealous or greedy or self-righteous or whatever. It's kind of tricky territory. So to help us weave our way through this maze, I'm happy to welcome somatic Enneagram coach and the co-host of the Enneagram Typecast. Karen Burley to the pod. Hi, Karen. Welcome. Hi, I'm so excited to be at the Patrama party. (gasps) Yay. Yeah, girl. Put on your little party hat. I'm so glad you're here. And to intro you to the group, tell us about your astrology. What is, what's your sun moon rising? Yeah. So I am a Pisces sun with an Aquarius moon and Sagittarius, right? Oh, sorry. No, (laughs) I have an Aquarius (laughs) rising and a Sagittarius moon. (sighs) I, okay. So being a Sag myself, I love Sag moons because they're so curious about emotional landscapes, which I super admire. Also, I like when I was thinking about Pisces and Aquarius, it's interesting because they're so different. Pisces needs to feel and Aquarius needs to understand but they both live pretty far outside the box. Like Pisces often has psychic capabilities and can kind of have this like dreamy aspect. And Aquarius is super forward thinking, like futuristic. Do you feel like you kind of march to the beat of your own drum? I would like to more, honestly. Mm. I I, it de- I definitely feel it inside of me. It's like putting it out there is something that is a practice. Mm. I And I feel like I like... Um, my Pisces side, but it's like the Aquarius kind of comes in and I get really, really heady about a lot of things. And Mm. then my Sag is in there too. Of course, I'm like, I have to know all the things before I can really understand them. But Mm. then really when it comes down to my intuition and stuff, I am such a feeler. Yeah. Well, that's such a Pisces thing, you know, like so intuitive and so feeling, but I can, I completely understand how having those two so prominently in your chart, Pisces and Aquarius could make you feel a little like, Oh shit, I don't know what to do. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I'm coming out of, hopefully I'm always like, I'm coming out of this phase. And I hope that's true. I'm just feeling like, what do I know? What can I even talk about? And actually having to rely on Um, this sense that just like being is enough, just Mm. kind of showing up and swimming in the waters is enough when my mind really doesn't like not knowing things. Totally. Yep. That's such an Aquarius thing. Yeah. Well, I, I, I completely hear you on that. And I'm so happy to dive into this topic with you. This is actually one of your focuses in the work that you do. So I can't wait to hear your thoughts. I'm going to go ahead and get into my experience on this. Feel free to jump in with you know, thoughts, ideas, rhythmic chanting, whatever (laughs) comes up. Or if you want to just like do your hair, eat a crab cake, doodle, you know, totally fine too. Either way at the end, I'll turn some questions over to you. How does that sound? Sounds great. And now you've inspired me to maybe doodle, which is something I um, would like to do more actually. Oh, good. Yay. Yeah, girl, get your doodle on. Cool. Sweet. Okay. This is something I've kind of talked about in past episodes, but it applies here too. So (laughs) if this were a country song, I would name it 
why I've dated umpteen emotionally unavailable dudes and why when they are obviously unavailable, I have continued to pine after them for years instead of dating emotionally available guys instead. <laughs> Just a fun a great title. Thank you. Catchy, twangy, you know, song about my shadow. Mm, I like that song, song for my shadow. <laughs> yeah. Song for my shadow, the country version. If you've listened to the pod before, you already know that my dad was super emotionally unavailable. He was mean to his kids. He was scary or, or he was disinterested. And then every once in a while he'd like get really high or drunk or something and tickle us. And it would hurt really bad, but I would let him do it anyway and pretend I liked it because otherwise I didn't get any physical affection from him at all. And that's, you know, the other top 40 country song about my life. Just a lot of bangers over here today. Anyway, I remember my dad's girlfriend telling me when I was like 12 or 13 that I should start learning about alcoholism because kids grow up to look for partners who are like their parents. So I would probably end up with someone who struggled with addiction. And I remember being like in my head, not out loud because I was groomed to be a people pleaser, but in my head thinking, fuck you. I will never be with anyone like my dad. And in some ways that was totally true. My dad was, and is a big rager. He gets really volatile, really fast. He's verbally abusive. He's mean. I've never been into dudes like that. I've always looked for guys who are really calm and even soft-spoken sometimes. My dad was also someone who always used the women he dated and, and his friends for financial support. He's had stints in his life of being able to pay his own rent, but never continuously. And that was always something I consciously looked for. I was always turned off by guys asking me to borrow money or just, you know, kind of not having their shit together financially. I was like, no scraps, honey. And substance addiction was also something I actively avoided in the guys I dated. So on the surface, I was pretty successful in sidestepping guys who were like my dad. But the truth was that these dudes were soft-spoken, financially responsible, not addicted to anything and unwilling or incapable of intimacy, one after the other. And by the time I was in my late 30s with a string of problematic dudes in my past and having never been in a real relationship, I was like, ooh, yeah, something is up here for sure. And it's about me. And what I realized was that the things I was consciously aware of not liking in my dad, I had consciously avoided. But it's not only our conscious mind at work, our subconscious is also in the driver's seat. And my subconscious had steered me over and over again toward these guys who just weren't emotionally available. Because as a 10 year old, I never had the thought like, wow, dad sure is limited in his emotional capacity. <laughs> and the reason I didn't think that was because kids don't make those connections, right? They take everything personally. I thought my dad didn't want to connect with me emotionally because there was something wrong with me. So my conscious brain was totally not registering that my dad was himself emotionally unavailable, but my subconscious was super plugged into that. And not only that, my subconscious was like, you know how you wanted your dad to love you. And for years and years, you tried to figure out like ways to make that happen by changing yourself. And it never really worked. What if we found someone as emotionally unavailable as your dad? And then we made that guy love you. We broke down that guy's walls, right? Like we conquered that guy that would fix all of the pain of your childhood. <laughs> Good plan. Uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. If only. So that's an example of some shadow shit. But even within that snapshot of my shadow, there's another piece to this for me. When I was little and secretly pining for my dad's love, I was also furious with him. My mom, who they were divorced. So when I would like get alone with my mom, she would be super vocal about the fact that he didn't pay child support because he didn't love us. And her life was a living hell because she had to work crazy hours so that, you know, we could have money and we could have what we needed. And if he really cared about us and us, you know, of course, included her too, he would pay child support. He would show up for, for us. 
So I really wanted him to love me. But at the same time, internally, I was secretly super resentful towards him, especially because when I visited him, I would hear him talk to his friends about how my mom was so crazy for asking him for money and basically, you know, just kind of being a douche about not taking any responsibility for his behavior and the fact that he had fathered a family. And I was, I was secretly infuriated about this. So fast forward 25 years and here I am trying and failing with all of these, you know, romantic, uh, interactions with guys and with every guy I dated, it was further proof for me that men are shitty. I was like, yep, see dudes are the fucking worst, which I want to be clear. Patriarchy is a thing. And there are a lot of privileged, entitled, uh, misogynistic, violent, racist, even, you know, willfully ignorant men and women out there that are sort of living through this systemic problem, you know, this, the patriarchy. Right. But in terms of my shadow stuff, there was more to that story, which I realized when about three years ago or so, maybe two, I read a book called existential kink by Carolyn Elliott. And I'll say it's definitely an interesting read. There are things about it. I liked other things I didn't, but her main point is that everything you have in your life, you want on some level, whether it be conscious or subconscious, even things you think you hate, which I actually don't think is true. I think that's a pretty privileged perspective, but in the case of my woeful dating situation, I could feel that there was truth to it. So I asked myself, what do I like about dating these guys? What subconscious itch is it scratching for me? And what I realized was I really didn't like dating these guys. And I, and I really didn't like being hurt by them over and over. But what I did like was being right about men and being entitled to my anger. Finally, I loved being able to talk shit about these guys and prove to the world through the guys I dated that men are unreliable and unaccountable and deeply fucking disappointing and emotionally one-dimensional and whatever, you know, basically all the things that I felt like my dad had been when I was growing up and I was so mad, but as a kid, of course, I couldn't be like, excuse me, dad, what the fuck is wrong with you? You just sit around getting high instead of taking care of your family. Fuck you. You know, like I, I couldn't express any of my anger. Well, I guess I could have, but I was so groomed to be this people pleaser and I really wanted him to love me. Right. But now as an adult, I could talk shit about dudes all day long. I could transfer that rage that I'd originally had toward my dad that I was, you know, swallowing constantly, I could transfer it to the idea of men in general, because the thing was, if I did, if I dated really great guys, then I couldn't be right about my outrage. It would challenge my self-righteous belief, which by the way, was also a despairing, traumatized, depressed belief that women can't trust men and that men don't love women. So even though on the conscious level, I wasn't happy dating these guys on a shadow level. I had finally found a way to be right and to be entitled to my rage about my dad and about men, which felt powerful and power was never something I'd been able to have as a kid. And I liked having it as an adult. So it also became this way of reclaiming my power and agency after years of having those stripped from me as a kid. So That's one example of how the shadow can kind of hijack the system and reroute you. And in terms of healing that wound and that behavior, it's honestly been only recently that I've become aware of those patterns with the guys I date. And so in the last year, I've been making a point to work with this by really tuning into emotionally available, reliable, feminist, solid guys, guys, my friends date or are married to guys I see in the world, um, relatives, whatever, men who are able to be vulnerable and loving. And I'm allowing that to consciously challenge my ideas about men and also to think about what it would feel like to be with someone like that. I'm letting go of this fantasy around making a guy who has a bunch of walls up, like my dad did, love me. 
of like being the person who can finally make him decide to be vulnerable and, you know, confess his love to me. This whole um, emotional porn scenario that I concocted, that's just not the reality. Waiting around for that has brought me a lot of pain. And the healing is in realizing that that desire in me was coming from a shadow part of myself that isn't bad or wrong. It's just not healed. The healed part of me wants actual intimacy and connection. And the more I focus on what that looks like in real people, real men, the more I can identify it and seek it out when I'm looking for a partner instead of subconsciously looking for someone like my dad. It's also clued me into how much unexpressed anger I have and how important it is to get that out. In the last episode, I talked about going out into the desert with my friend when I found out about Roe v. Wade being overturned and just screaming and screaming and screaming. So that's one awesome way to work with rage. Another cool thing I've done is a visualization technique where I imagine I'm back in time in a memory, like a traumatic memory I have with my parents, but now I'm an adult and I insert adult Remy into the scenario and I just fucking scream at them. I tell them they're fucked up. They're shitty parents. I don't hold back. And you know, the truth is my parents were both also super traumatized. So I don't know this idea of like people did the best I could, they could. I don't, I don't always know if that's true, but I like to think that it's true. And so I would never really say these kind of just like what can feel like mean things to say to their faces. Right. But I don't let any of that shit stop me or censor me when I'm doing this work, because in those visualizations, I don't have to worry about hurting anyone's feelings or making anyone mad or like, you know, Am I getting an A in spirituality? You know, am I being a good spiritual person or whatever? All I'm thinking about in, in that work is my healing and what I need to say to make me feel better. So I'm still looking for more ways to consciously work with anger, but that's been really helpful shadow work for me. I have another more recent example. And Karen, this is one that you and I talked about the other day when we chatted. So. Once upon a time, I was living in a house with three roommates and one moved out. So I put the room on Craigslist and interviewed new potential roommates. And when I interviewed these people, I would say, so we have a chore chart in the house. We all split weekly chores. Are you cool with that? And everyone said yes. And I picked someone who I thought was cool and nice and fun. And she moved in. Well, a few months into her living in the house, it became really clear that she was actually not into doing chores at all. She just wouldn't do them. And so I checked in with her and was like, Hey, I noticed you haven't been doing your chores and I wanted to check in. The first time I said that she was really apologetic, but nothing changed. The second time I checked in, she was kind of hostile and nothing changed. And the third time I checked in, she blew up at me. She was like, you're a control freak. I don't have to do what you say. You should just move out if you don't like it. And she really exploded. Let me pause here. One thing that I really hate when people say is if you have an issue with someone, it's not because of them. It's because you see something in them that you don't like about yourself. And that's what you're actually upset about. And the reason I hate that is because being raised by people with narcissistic traits, they love to make you the problem in an attempt to not take responsibility for their own shit. One of the first things you learn about narcissists is that they just won't apologize or that like, if they do apologize, there's always like uh, an excuse attached to it. But more often than not, it's something like, well, you did this. So you're actually the one to blame here. This isn't about me at all. Like they'll deflect in other words. And so telling the child of parents with narcissistic traits that she's actually always the cause of an issue that upsets her is very triggering. So anyway, back to this issue with my roommate, Karen, when you and I talked the other day, I actually brought the scenario up to you to be like, well, this is a great example of when me having an issue with someone was not about me, right? Like this, this person was unaccountable and verbally abusive. I'm not upset about her doing that because I do that. I'm upset because I definitely don't do shit like that. I'm very intentional about being a good communicator, being accountable for myself. And I have a right to be upset if someone doesn't hold themselves to the same standard of integrity. And I definitely have a right to be upset if someone becomes abusive. And Karen, you brought up a great point, which was that 
yeah, that's true. Like that's totally true. Those certain things that I was naming in her, they were problematic and yeah, I don't do those things, but maybe there was something about her giving herself permission to not be a people pleaser and to do whatever the fuck she wanted and to just not help out around the house and have a full on tantrum, which was, you know, actually beyond a tantrum. It was pretty abusive, but still her just breaking down and not giving a fuck who she offended. Maybe that was something I resented in her because I never allowed myself to do those things. And maybe there was a part of me that was angry at her for daring to do something that I would never give myself permission to do that I secretly wanted to do. And Karen, when you said that, I was like, oh shit. <laughs> <I> was like, <laughs> sneaky shadow. <laughs> sneaky ass shadow. I was like, that's totally true. I have really gotten mad at myself in the past for being a people pleaser. And especially when I was much younger for, for doing what other people wanted or expected of me so that I didn't make waves or so that I didn't make them upset. And here was someone who was just like, fuck you guys. I do what I want and I feel totally fine about it. And the thing is, you know, it's not okay to verbally abuse people or refuse to do, you know, shared chores or agree to do something and then not do it when the time comes. That's just, you know, it's just like asshole behavior. So because I could see that it was also okay that I had boundaries around that behavior and was like, Hey, you're not doing this is not okay. But the shadow aspect for me is that Sometimes I feel guilty if I'm not being a people pleaser. And when others don't feel that same sense of obligation, it triggers me. So sometimes in healing these shadow parts of us, it's important to have clarity that it's not always like an either or it can be a both. And it can be about saying, I'm allowed to have boundaries here. Your behavior is not okay. And I need to look at what I'm projecting onto you. That's not about you. It's actually about me. Oof. big learning. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Woof. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what strikes me about that, I have so much to say, but I'll just start with what strikes me about that particular situation happening now and the, the situation you described with like being able to bring your adult self into this visualization with your parents mm -hmm. is you actually do have the capacity now to feel your anger and set some boundaries so that you mm -hmm. didn't have when you were a child. Totally. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Boundaries are, um, yeah. Cause you know, I brought up power stuff, right? Like I didn't feel powerful as a child and like having this rage made me feel powerful as an adult, but yeah, that's another way that we can reclaim power. Right. It's like, I don't have to say that all men are, are shitty inherently. What I can do is be like, Oh, if I see that you you know, you being maybe a guy I date or, or anyone you, um, are violating my boundary in some way I can set a healthy boundary and then I can reclaim my power in a way that doesn't actually sabotage me because me being like, I really want a relationship with a man and all men are shit is not helpful. It's like not the move. It's not the power move I'm looking for. Right. So it's these other ways of finding, finding power. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I'll give one last example here. So years ago, I dated someone who actually was later diagnosed as being on the sociopathic scale. So, you know, problematic, but one thing that came up between us was he loved to spoil me. He wanted to pay for all my groceries and buy me presents. And, and, and he also wanted to take over my finances so that he could take care of my credit card bills. And we were dating while I was going through a really deep depression. I was having suicidal ideation every day. It was a horrible time in my life. And I was broke as fuck because I was in grad school. So when he was like, I want to pay for all your shit and take care of you. I was like, wow, that sounds great. Like I said, he was kind of a sociopath. And so he went around telling everyone that I was using him for his money when he was actually insisting on paying for things. And in the end, a lot of people were mad at me because they thought I had taken advantage of him. But more importantly, I felt weird about the situation because I knew there was a part of me that really liked being spoiled. And I felt ashamed of that. Like maybe I wasn't being a good feminist and maybe I wasn't being a good person. What I later realized was that part of what attracted me to him was the feeling that I was being taken care of because it was something I had never experienced as a child, especially not from my dad, right? 
I remember feeling really envious of my girlfriends who were like, you know, kind of like daddy's girls, like whose dad spoiled them and took care of them and bought them nice things and wanted to spend time with them and, you know, was loving toward them. I didn't have that. I, I didn't have that dad. And there was a part of me, a part of my inner child that really wanted to know what it felt like to be spoiled by a man. And when I dated this guy, part of the attraction I had to him was that I felt cared for. I felt seen and loved and nurtured and protected in this way that I had never experienced before. Of course, when I realized that the reason he'd insisted on taking over my finances was so that he could secretly max out my credit cards, that all vanished pretty quickly. But when I did the shadow work to find out what had felt so intoxicating about the situation, what I realized was that yes, I didn't get what I needed from my dad really on any level. I certainly wasn't spoiled by him. And yes, it made perfect sense that I would subconsciously be drawn to someone who wanted to spoil me because that need to feel secure and cared for and valued had been so profoundly neglected in my life from day one, right? Of my childhood. So in terms of healing that pain, I realized that part of the reason I felt like I needed to find someone to spoil and nurture and baby me was because I wasn't doing that for myself. I was being militant with myself. I was forcing myself to go to grad school and get straight A's and teach freshman English courses while I was battling depression and suicidal thoughts every single day. When what I really needed was to take a year off and take care of myself and go slow and be gentle. I wasn't doing that on any level. So part of that shadow work for me was realizing I needed to be my own emotional and material sugar daddy. <laughs> like I needed to treat myself with tenderness and to pamper myself and really tune into my needs. If I could do that, I wouldn't rely on other people to make me feel cared for and nurtured because I would already have that feeling of safety and of being valued within myself. Okay. That was a lot. Karen, how are you doing? <laughs> I am. I'm like, how long do we have? Because there's so much here. It's, it's so great to hear the examples and to hear you explain it so well. Oh, cool. Yay. Okay. Well, I'm fascinated by this topic and so stoked to hear more. So let me start with this question. Just the term shadow, it kind of immediately makes us think that there are these like dirty or wrong or like gross defective parts of ourselves working behind the scenes. How can we think about the shadow differently so that we can actually work with it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even in your stories, there was all the, this narrative of like, well, no, I wouldn't do that. Or I will never do this. Or, mm -hmm. and I think it's really helpful to just neutralize it and recognize our systems, our, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, like are taking in so much information every second. It's like millions of bits of information mm -hmm. and we have to prioritize some of it and deprioritize others bits of information. And of course, we're going to prioritize the things that are going to keep us the safest. And also we do this really fun project um, of creating an ego ideal that says, I am like this and I'm not like that. Oh. And we all are doing this. And so I think just to start out knowing that that's just what being a human entails, we're going to hide certain parts of ourselves from ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's just that. I mean, even in your stories, as you're saying, well, I hate when people say this. And when I look deeper, I can nuance it mm -hmm. because we, we have to be general, we have to, you know, delete, distort and generalize the information that comes in because it's just too much to hold consciously. And I think our culture really, really puts a lot of value on knowing everything consciously with like our mental thinking minds. And that's just really not uh, realistic that we can actually know everything with our minds that we are taking in. Like even just the visual input that we're getting every second is totally overwhelming. So your shadow is not, it's just not a bad thing. It just is neutral. And it's also not a mistake. It's not a flaw. We're doing it whether we know it or not. And until we do a lot of this work and recognize our stories and where we came from and why we developed all those mechanisms, we don't really 
um, have a lot of compassion for, for why things are going on in our life that we maybe don't think we want, Mm. but really it's so intelligent. And I just, I really like this idea that everything we're doing is so deeply intelligent Mm. and maybe just maybe not in the way we were taught, which is like, I can explain it and understand it and have all the things that our culture tells us success looks like. Mm. And when you say intelligent, do you mean like, okay, so going back to that example of, um, looking for emotionally unavailable guys, because I want to, I want to finally have the feeling of like, I made you love me. Right. Is that what you mean by intelligent? Like there's something in me that wants to be healed. And so I keep circling back to this thing. That's not quite what I mean, but I think it fits a bit. But what I mean is like, uh, our systems know what is going to totally overwhelm us. And so it hides that from us because it's like, you can't deal with this right now, especially as a child. And so many, I would venture to say, maybe all of these patterns start in childhood, whether you have an overtly abusive situation, like what you're describing or more subtle ways of being undermined or of um, feeling really strongly, like you have to live up to this ego ideal or else you're not safe in some way. Mm. It's like, it's totally overwhelming for any child and for many adults, especially as we're like trying to survive in all the other ways now to even look at this stuff. Mm. And so it's intelligent that it is hidden from us, even if that's frustrating to the conscious mind. Oh, that's cool. I love that. Yeah. It's like actually trying to keep us safe. Yeah. Yeah. And then when, like, when you start noticing it, right. To me, that means you're in a grounded and a safe enough space to let in some old stories or even look to see if there are things that don't match with what your ego really wants you to think about it. And the big thing, one thing I heard in your story that is really big for, for many people. And I would say, especially like white women, I see see it a lot. And it's really a facet of whiteness in a lot of ways is like, I'm a good person. Mm. I would never be a bad person. Mm. Um, And there's, actually, I won't get too much into Enneagram language, but there is also Enneagram types that that have certain elements of this, right? But as soon as we say, well, I'm a good person and I'm never a bad person, we're immediately cut off from looking at anything that our ego has decided makes you a bad person. Mm. And this is already a flawed statement because again, going back to neutrality and all the things you talk about on your podcast and all this work that we do to see ourselves is we certainly have a role to play in our own journey. And there's so much going on that is so beyond our control. And if we don't have compassion for that, we really can't work with it. It's, it's so shameful. Mm. And I'm so curious, why do you think this is something um, specific to white women? Yeah, well, if you look at how women look at each other, white women, and are like, I think there's a lot of ways we get put into cultural situations or like group dynamics where women look at each other and say, well, I'm not like her. Mm. Um, And this, it upholds this system where we think, well, the better people just get the better things. And I want, I want to have this nice life that I want and I get, I want to have it. And this kind of like righteousness of like, I deserve it means in some way, when the ego is doing that, yeah, I personally think we all deserve to have a wonderful life, you know, totally. and and yet when the ego has co-opted this, it's like, we think there's a zero sum game. And this is, that's a product of like whiteness, capitalism, colonialism is like, well, we can't all be at the top. So I've got to push you down and I've got to say, well, you're not a good person. I am. Mm. Therefore I deserve more. Mm, interesting. That's totally like a <laughs> tiny um, piece of the conversation. Well, what I think is so interesting about that is now we're talking about the cultural shadow, right? Like we're talking about what, what shadow does our culture carry? And I think that may even be harder for us to um, see because it's, it's not individual to like your upbringing, right? Like I can say, oh yeah, my dad was this way. And I, and I know that, but I don't know a culture outside of my culture, right? 
So I can't even see what's happening. Like, I don't, it's, it's the water I'm swimming in. So I don't even know it's happening. Like I wouldn't know it unless I went to a culture where that wasn't happening. Right. And so I think that what, that's so interesting, what you're talking about. And, and it reminds me that like my, my grandmother is, uh, we're Mexican on my dad's side. And my grandmother was raised, well, she's Catholic and, and very Catholic, you know, devout, like rosary every morning Catholic. And I remember like growing up, she would talk to me about how pious she was. She would, she would talk to me about how like everyone loved her because she was so giving and she was so generous and, um, she was such a good mother and she was so clean. And it was like, basically she was kind of, I didn't realize it at the time, and I just thought like, my grandma is the best grandma. <laughs> but as an adult, when I looked back on it, I was like, oh yeah. Like, um, I can imagine being a Mexican American woman growing up in the fifties in Texas and being poor. Like there was a lot of needing to feel like you mattered and Catholicism has very strict, you know, very specific standards for women. And it was like, yeah, she always kind of needed to talk about how she definitely was this kind of person. And so for me being raised in part by her, I'm sure I took some of that on. Yeah. Well, and the tricky part is right. Is like the shadow underneath that. It's like uh, when we actually look at what does it mean to, and, and I don't love the word good or bad, right. Cause it's so moralistic and subjective, but even if we look at like, we, there's all these conversations about being an ally. You can't name it for yourself. It's actually inherently unselfconscious. If you're just living in a way that is in integrity and you're sharing love and supporting people and you're doing all the things, you don't have to go around saying, look, I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. It's just reflected back to you when it's in the, the, when in the shadow underneath that, which is usually where it is when, you know, like, doth they who who doth protest too much right, right yeah it, it's like if i need to go around saying look at me i'm so awesome i'm so great i'm so wonderful um then there's usually something underneath that that's like and i can never be needy and i can never be mm. mean and i can never be, you know whatever it is that you've internalized as not okay mm-hmm. so we we end up having to prop things up instead of just allowing them to come through, which is what can happen. Like when we integrate the shadow, it's like, sure, we can speak to our experience, but there's less charge around like, and, and this is when we talk about shadow, I think we're, I think we're going to get into this in, in a minute. Like, what does it even mean or how do you know it's there? But I think when there's like compulsion and charge around these things, that's a really good sign that there's something that's not being looked at in the shadow. Whereas if I just like know in myself that I'm a good person and I'm loving and I like am inherently, you know, worthy and valuable and care about people and I don't have to prove it, I'm usually that's going to just like ooze out of me and people are going to enjoy my company and they're going to feel safe around me. And like, those things are just going to happen. Right. Yeah. Man. Okay. So much. Well, and so I'm actually like, I feel like this next question is good because we're, we're, these are all these big, right. Ideas, but what does the process actually look like of identifying what shadow stuff is operating subconsciously in any given situation. Like if we've never done that before, if we've never tried shadow work, talk us through what it looks like to kind of figure out if we're projecting our shadow onto other people. Yeah. Well, one of the words that you used in one of your stories, I think about um, the the partners like paying for everything Mm. was that it was intoxicating. Mm. Like there was, again, it goes back to this sense. I like the word charge. It's just like, charged there's something there whether it feels intoxicating or it feels like you're holding something down really strongly or it feels really enlivening to the point of like excess i think a lot of how we can tell what's here is how it shows up in our bodies because our bodies are gonna be they're kind of this conduit of what has charge for us and so much of it is emotional and psychological and spiritual and all of this stuff so if i'm talking about something and I, my shadow is like very, uh, 
very much like I'm not that intense or like I'm not um extreme or like dramatic or like there's the parts of me that are absolutely those things I don't get to see very often unless I'm really working at it mm. because uh my ego ideal doesn't really like that <laughs> mm. um which I've learned about myself over the years but when I'm sharing with someone when I'm saying something I would repeatedly get reflected back like, whoa, you really care about this or like, oh, you seem so upset. And I'd be like, no, I'm not. I'm not upset. I'm fine. I'm fine. And only having someone who's actually attuned to like what is coming through and then having teachers and mentors and therapists and coaches being like, what's going on in your body? I could be like, oh, my heart is racing as I'm saying this or like I'm getting hot or I'm like having this surge of emotion or there's like tears here it's just not neutral at all mm. and you know most things we do aren't neutral but I think particularly when there are things that consistently bring up that charge whether it's proclaiming loudly and assertively I'm a good person that's mm. not me um it's usually a good sign that there's something going on underneath to work with mm. I love that because it's it makes it so much easier because <laughs> we can just check in with our actual bodies. We don't have to like figure something out or like do a math equation or something. It's just like, it's already there. And I know for me, um, I didn't talk about this in this episode, but I've talked about it several times in past ones. I dated a guy on and off for 10 years. And like, there was no actual dating occurring. We were sleeping together, but I, it felt so compulsive to me to the point that I started going to sex and love addicts anonymous, because I was like, why can't I stop? Why can't I get so hurt dating this guy, but I just can't fucking stop or dating, sleeping with this guy. <laughs> dating is like very generous for what was happening. Um, and it, and this is so helpful because no one has ever framed it for me in this way, that there was something really, there was just some deep shadow stuff. And I know now looking back on it, when I think about, um, this process of looking for someone subconsciously who was like my dad and feeling like if, if only I did this thing, I'll break down his walls. If only I could figure out this thing oh, I think he might be coming around. Like, I'm going to keep, I'm going to go back, you know, like, yeah. And how actually what was happening was this little Remy who felt so, um, unloved, you know, yeah, and unseen and unworthy was, was kind of, you know, in the shadows, mm -hmm. so to speak, being like, I need, I have, I have to get that feeling that I matter. Yeah. And, and I am in, I'm going to kind of, I am going to try it this way now. And at the time I had no idea that that's what was happening. And so this feels really helpful. This idea of checking in with the body, because it felt like when I would get around him, it was like, I lost power over myself. Like I just couldn't say no. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to even this like existential kink thing, right? Is there something erotic about it? Mm -hmm. And there's something that is needing to maybe even be released through the body, whether that is like an orgasm or you were talking about how good that righteous anger fe felt mm -hmm. when you're able to actually scream and move it through your body. Mm -hmm. We can't do it mentally. We, we just, it has to move through our entire systems. And what's so interesting in your story, and yeah, you know, I've listened to the podcast and um, just love how you share, but this, something I learned that I just, I want to offer here is that the experience of shame or like when you're talking about recognizing that you just felt so unlovable um, and how shameful that feels and how as, as children, especially you turn that in on yourself and it's just like, like, well, there must be something terribly wrong with me. That's actually the shadow of that is grief mm. and shame feels more actionable because it's like, well, if there's something wrong with me, then maybe I can fix it. If there's something wrong with me that my dad is screaming at me and then I fix this person or I can, this, you know, person I'm sleeping with or whatever, like, it's like, I have power, I have control. 
instead of actually feeling the grief of which I know you've also been doing of like that little one who just needed love and deserved love and didn't get it. And that's so painful. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. You're right. Shame. If I'm, if I'm ashamed of myself, then I can say, um, oh, I did this bad thing. I'm never going to do that again. And it's so interesting because in this exact same scenario with this guy, after I would sleep with him, every time I'd be like, that's it. I'm never doing it again. I feel like shit. I'm never going to do that again. There, what, and I did feel really, um, I felt really ashamed going to sex and love addicts anonymous. I felt gross and so, like something's really gr- defective with me. Right. Like, but you're right. It feels like, okay, well, if I just never sleep with him again, or if I figure out what's wrong so that I, so I'm not actually like a, a love addict, you know, whatever that means. Um, then I have control. Yeah. And I think this happens so much, even in the healing world, I'm definitely guilty of it myself. Or I mean, even some of my teachers have a issue with the word healing because it's like, you're already whole. You're, you're, there's nothing broken. There's nothing to heal. And of course it can feel that way, but we can get into these cycles of like, I just have to buy this course. I just have to work with this person. Mm. I just have to figure this all out and, and change myself. And then I'll be healed when actually, you know, so much of it goes to this grief, um, you know, in the work I do, the three core pieces that come up are fear, shame, or grief and anger. And you really touched on the anger and the shame and fear is a whole conversation we don't probably have time to get into, but those are the three core pieces that pop up for people or that are kind of at the root of a lot of um, what ends up pushing us into these patterns and hiding our shadow even more until we start to see it or we have some sort of um, release or experience where we can actually address it, Um, which again, I feel like is a a testimony to the fact that at that point in your life, you are ready to integrate. You're actually willing to look at the hard stuff, which I don't, you know, some people maybe start younger than others, but it really feels like we're not able to do that until we're a little more mature. Yes. Right. You have to be ready for it. But in terms of, I know, I know we probably don't have time to like go into fear because it's like a whole thing, but I feel like you did touch on it when you were talking about the ego um, and the ego being like, Ooh, I can't, uh, <laughs> Ooh, I can't be uh, needy. I can't be too much. That was yeah. my big, um, I mean, I guess that's, that's also shame, but like, there's a fear aspect, right? Like I can't. Yeah. Well, there's a core fear of like, and if I do the thing that I I'm it have internalized that I absolutely cannot do. Like I will die is mm. the fear. I will be, it will annihilate me. Um, and some people's flavor is more like I'll be pushed out of the group. I won't be loved. I won't belong. Some people's is a little more like resource-based. Like I'll lose my role or, or I'll lose my financial security. I'll lose my home. Like there's mm. that element or I will be so, unappealing and so repulsive, Mm. um, that I just won't, life won't be worth living. You know, there's different flavors of this, but the fear is there and all of it is like, and and it's why we have this drive to always be one way and not another is like, I, we think we're saving ourselves from literal death is like what the ego feels. Right. Right. Totally. Oh man, that is so, it's so big. It's just so big. It's so big. I relate to it so deeply. Um, and I feel like in that situation with the guy for 10 years, I, my big thing was if you know that I care about you, if I, cause I never, I didn't say it until 10 years in (laughs) that I really cared about him and that it was really hurting me. Um, I, it was that feeling of, if I tell you that I care, then I, then I am so afraid that I will be rejected. Right. And then I'll die. That's right. It goes back to like wanting the power, wanting to be in control in some ways. Right. And so in, in all these different ways, and you know, my work, I talked about like nine core different ways that this shows up more explicitly, but at the base level, we're all saying like, 
it's it's okay. I'm I'm in control. I'm safe, and I'm um and I'm lovable as long as I always do X and never do Y. Mm. And right, we, we, it comes down to what we've learned and and what we've internalized and all this stuff. But it's yeah, it's huge. And I think this work, so much of the work I do, is like, can we just start to look at it like little by little, and then can we allow it? Can we just be like, oh crap there's a part of me that loves being under this spell where mm. I'm this close to being rejected, but I'm still in control mm. or, you know, the, and that's kind of the existential kink piece is like, there's totally. something erotic. There's something, my soul or my ego, like there's some part of me that loves this story that loves this pattern. Mm. And until I can actually allow myself to look at that, I'm it's, uh, I love the Carl Jung quote. He says, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Uh, <laughs> or you'll call it like men are shit. Men are shitty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. You'll call it men are shitty. And then you'll be like, I'm correct. Yeah. Like, I'm I right. don't know. It's just how it is. That's just right. It. Hey, I'm, I'm correct. And I'm powerful. Yay. But I'm also alone. So, right. (laughs) And I love that like part of your journey is like looking at counter examples and actually being able to take them in. And like, I would say, I love when you're talking about like, can I feel what it would feel like to be loved in this way instead of having that automatic, well, like, well, they get it, but I can't, or like almost being like, well, maybe they're secretly shitty. And I've had that too. (laughs) Exactly. Right. It takes such conscious, intentional effort to be like oh can I allow in a story that's different from the story I've been holding on to so tightly right okay this one let me okay (laughs) I'm just gonna ask it because I do think it's important how do we know when someone is projecting their shadow onto us and if we are if we do know or suspect that's happening what do we how do we like take care of ourselves Yeah. Well, as we've been talking about, it's like, it's happening all the time in both directions, right? right? If we're doing it constantly, like even the best of intentioned people who like aren't, you know, diagnosed with some sort of narcissism or or sociopathy or anything like it's, we're all doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so part of it is just recognizing like, yeah, it's going to be happening in both directions, but there is actually I like this piece even though it's hard to swallow until we're ready um there's something empowering about recognizing the piece that is mine even if I don't like the situation so I've heard this example and it's silly and I think it gets the point across which is like you're walking down the street and someone like screams at you like your hair is green you're probably going to be like okay that's weird. That's on them. Right. My hair isn't green. Like, wow. I don't know. That's your stuff. But if somebody that you care about is telling you that you're being dramatic, even in a kind voice, right. Right. Or materialistic or whatever. Yeah. Right. Then we're having that charged body response to it, which means there's some part of us Mm -hmm. that feels sensitive about that, that is worried. It's true. That wants to defend against because we're like, no, it's not true. And then we're back to knowing, oh, okay, there's something here. Mm -hmm. And I'm not here to say that every single time there's a charge to anything anyone says, you have to like pause everything and go do shadow work. Mm -hmm. I think that there are levels and layers and timing that is so important. And so starting to pay attention, like if that's happening all the time, or if you're seeing themes of like, yeah, it's the dramatic thing, or it's the thinking I'm a good person thing, or it's, you know, if that's coming up a lot, that's when it's helpful to just take stock of like, okay, what is it that gets activated in me when that happens that I feel like I have to defend myself or I want to like run and hide because it's so painful that anyone would say anything like that to me. That's when I would say we can start to be like, cool, let me get myself to a safe space, whether that's alone and I feel safe enough in my body to work with it alone or with a practitioner or in the woods or, you know, somewhere that is um, where you're able to ground in. And it's so, so important to have those internal resources available before we start to like unravel this shadow stuff. Because again, there's a reason that our ego said, hey, we can't look at that right now. 
Mm, yeah. But if it's coming up, I kind of take that as a sign that like, okay, there's something that is really ready to be witnessed here. There's something that really wants my attention. If, especially if someone on the street is like yelling something or I overhear something or it's in the show I watch and in the converse and the podcast I listen to and this and this, it's like, oh, okay, there, this is all around me and it's begging to be looked at. And there's probably going to be something that my mind can't consciously uh, fully integrate yet. Until I like sit down with this. Yeah. Because we have to be willing to be like, okay, what if I'm, what if I have to feel like I'm not a good person, even for five minutes Mm. can feel so threatening. So you want to have someone you've built rapport with to be like, listen, I know you and I have so much compassion for you as another human. And my nervous system is relatively regulated. And so I can hold your feelings and your fears and your shame and your anger Um, that I think is why we reach out to each other and how we heal. Mm, I really like that. Sorry, heal, I guess, (laughs) but how we integrate this, right? How we let it be. Yeah. I, so I use the word heal a lot, but I do like the idea of like integrating, um, as being synonymous or, or something. Maybe I have to think about that some more, but I do like that. Yeah. Oh, this is my own shadow being like, I said that before. And then I said this part and people are going to be like, what a hypocrite, you know, there's, there's definitely, it's again, it's like always here. So I'm like, can I let that go? And especially I have my own podcast and I've like said stuff on there that I maybe don't agree with anymore. And it's like big work for my ego to be like, oh, is that contentious? Should I apologize? Oh my God. Oh my God. I hear that. I really hear that as someone who has like recorded her thoughts on trauma. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And put it on the world. I hear you. Which is what's so great about like being here with you is like, oh, you're in this, you're in a similar boat. Like we're doing this work alongside one another work. We can just name it and even laugh about it. And it's so much easier to laugh about it when there's someone else there being like, I get it. I love you anyway. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, it's so interesting. I mean, this is an aside, but me starting this podcast was a big shadow work thing because my biggest fear my whole life was that I was too much emotionally and, and no one, people didn't want that. I wouldn't be loved if people knew how intense my emotions were. I had to hide that. Um, it was, I was ashamed of it. And then I've just finally got to a point where I was like, I can't be in that space anymore. It's yeah. killing me. And I am willing to fucking bet cash money that there's someone else out there who has been there and my story is going to help. And I just want to, I just, I don't want to be in this shame space anymore. And I'm just going to do the thing that everyone says to do, which is like, um, you know, the thing that you think is your greatest flaw is actually your greatest gift or whatever. I was just like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do that thing and put, I'm just going to put all of my shame stuff out there. And, um, yeah, no, that's, I'm similar, like, Oh, putting myself out there, like swearing publicly is like, it's just such a good practice. I'm like, whatever. Like if you're going to listen to this and not want to work with me, okay. I don't need <laughs> everyone to want what I have. And, but that's, ooh, that's big. And it actually, it reminds me of, I was thinking about my own shadow story, um, like similar to your roommate situation. And this happened to me um, about a year ago. I took this like big training program. And I, so I studied the Enneagram. I've been really into it for a long time. And I like signed up for this huge class with all these experts. And we had a guest teacher who has like been in the field for like 20, 30 years is like, so highly regarded. I like have some of her books, like, you know, all these things. And she guest taught and just did a a thing. And she was maybe one of the first guest teachers. Um, And I was so irritated by the presentation. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is, this sucks. Like, this is stupid. Like I had this really intense reaction and I didn't share it until someone else. We had like smaller groups was like, did anyone feel like weird about this? And I was like, yes, I'm right. Like, this was bad. (laughs) This was terrible. Yeah. But it like took someone saying it, but then I was still so activated about it. And we came together in our 
what we call it, the learning labs. And we came together in this group and someone was like, oh, a couple people mentioned this. Like, should we talk about it? And I was like, just wanted people to be on my side. I was like, I just want to be right that like everyone thought this was bad. Mm. And, and what actually came out of it with everyone holding space for me as I'm sharing in a way I don't feel comfortable sharing is I started to realize that this person who had been in this field that I'm entering into offered a presentation that was fine. It was fine. It felt maybe mediocre or the tone was different from the rest of the class, whatever. It was fine, <laughs> but it really aggravated me. And, and through processing it, I was like, oh, I want to be teaching and oh. I'm not. And the fact that this person is getting paid so much money and has such a platform and is giving a thing that seems to be mediocre when I'm holding myself back because I'm terrified of giving a mediocre presentation wow, or of how people might see it or that anyone could react how I'm reacting to this person wow. is like terrifying. And it was such a release and to name it and like not that long after, you know, I, um, my friend reached out, was like, do you want to start a podcast about the Enneagram? And I've been teaching more, but even last week I, or I had a, I gave a presentation and I didn't feel incredible about it. And it like messed me up for like, I'm still coming out of it. Like, right. like the, the lead up. So there's, I'm just like, okay, there's a bunch of shadow stuff ready, waiting for me, ready in there for me to work around, like presenting what I know and like right. doing group stuff. And, you know, I'm sure there's more that I'll, I don't know yet. <laughs> wow. That is so big. And that's so interesting because I know that's one of the things that kind of like the go-to thing they say about jealousy is like, but sometimes you don't even know that you're jealous until you do the work. You're just pissed or like yeah. irritated or something, but yeah, that, that you can be jealous of someone because they're doing something that you wish you were doing and you can use use jealousy as a really good, um, entry point into right. giving you information about what you really want to be doing. So, right. Cause yeah. if someone was like doing something and I'm like, whatever, I don't, <laughs> I don't need to be doing that. Like it just doesn't have a lot of charge. Like I, I someone I know gave a Ted talk and I was just like, that's pretty cool, but I don't need to give a Ted talk. So it's <laughs> right. not, I'm not like, I'm like, wow. Nice. You know, and I can move on. There's just not a lot of charge. Right. Yeah. 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 Oh my God. I feel that so hard. Okay. I have one last question. I, when I was kind of going through my stuff, I talked about realizing that my roommate's behavior was triggering me because she wasn't trying to be harmonious with the group. And that incensed this shadow part of me that feels like I have to always be harmonious with the group and kind of be a people pleaser, even when I don't want to. But then again, sometimes me looking for harmony is like a good thing. And, you know, we're having a reaction because we need to, to someone else's behavior because we need to draw boundaries with them. Right. When we're doing this work, what does it look like? How do we know when the shadow parts of ourselves can just be what they are or like when we need to work on integrating them and when we need to draw boundaries with others because it's their behavior like that needs to shift? Like what is what does that process look like? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've been really getting into it of like, okay, how much charge is there for me? Um, I mean, in your situation, it was someone in your immediate space that was like affecting you day to day. Right. Mm -hmm. So while there may be some stuff underneath to work with, there's, it's also important to listen to your body's cues again, back to the body is where I always take it because it can't really lie to us. Mm. Um, or it can only cover things for so long. Right. And so when we get quiet with ourselves, when we have space, um, to, to feel into it, you can, sometimes we have to start with a boundary and sometimes it's not the right boundary. Like sometimes it doesn't help. Um, or it's, there's something else going on, but it's, it's like wherever we want to start is great. And that's, you know, with my coaching clients, it's like, well, what's just the one next step or what's something we could experiment with or try on. Mm -hmm. um, I also think you're pointing to something like sometimes these really difficult things are such teachers and such, and even gifts like, well, sure, maybe you're a people pleaser, but you also probably like have really loving relationships because you know how to like read 
other people. Mm. Um, and so there's obviously discernment uh, needed. Um, I, I think it can be tricky because again, we want to go into black and white or like good or bad or like, well, I do this thing. Great. And it's never a problem. And again, seeing like, is there something really important to my ego about seeing myself in this way? Um, there's, yeah, I, a lot of it comes down to like, how can I get to a place of relative neutrality about this thing? And if it's like in my ear all the time, if it's coming up over and over again, am I willing to look at it mm. and maybe see something that I don't want to see? And I, that's the tricky part. It's like, like I know when we were talking about your roommate, it's like, well, I don't want to be told this and this because I'm a survivor of this and this, you know, which is all a valid reaction. And then there's like a deeper question if we were in a coaching call or something, and I just said it, and I'm glad you were able to receive some of it. Like, is there something else here? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's your initial response. And are you willing to look a little bit deeper? Mm. Well, that's always the question. Are you willing to look a little bit deeper? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, Karen, this has been such a beautiful conversation. Thank you so, so much for coming on. And if people want to get a hold of you, how can they find you? Yeah, well, they can head to my website, karenbrilly.com. Um, and they can check out my podcast, the Enneagram Typecast, where I drop all sorts of other nuggets of wisdom Yay. <laughs> with my co-host. Yeah. And those, yeah, those are the two main ways to get a hold of me. All my info should be there. I'm on Instagram, but I, um, and I'd love for you to follow me and connect. I just love connecting with people. Uh, I am sporadic about posting and I don't promise a ton of content creation. <laughs> so, but I do love connecting with people who love, love thinking about this stuff. Cool. Awesome. Yay. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me at uh, Remy's R E M E E Z on Insta. One day I'll make an Insta for this pod. I haven't done it yet, but, um, it's on my radar. You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. And if you have a minute, it would mean so much to me if you could go on to, um, Apple or Spotify or wherever you get pods and leave a review. If you feel like this podcast has been helpful for you, it really does mean so much to me and it, and it really makes a difference in the pod too. So, Thanks for coming along. Loved this conversation. And until the next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye.